If you would, go ahead and get your Bible, go to the book of Hebrews, and uh, we'll just kind of be at chapter 2, I guess. Since there's so many slides to get back to here, I'm not going to put those review slides back up, but three words, remember? You can kind of think through the, the main points of the book of Hebrews. What are those three words? The person, priesthood, and principle. Now, in other words, the whole point of Hebrews is demonstrating that Jesus is better. He is superior, right? And he's superior because of, really, those three words present, again, the whole line of argument that Hebrews lays out. And I'll get back to that in a second, but keep in mind, Hebrews, all right, it's, that's the name, right, the epistle to the Hebrews. Why? Well, obviously, because mainly it's addressed, it's, it's intended for believers or, well, but for people of Hebrew descent, right? So Jews. So that, that's important as well because obviously the arguments presented in the book are, they're, they're directed along that line of thinking, okay? And so uh, there's a lot of reliance on the Old Testament, obviously, uh, which would be something important in a Jewish mindset. Um, but it, it obviously makes sense. Now, the, the superior person of Christ, again, in the first uh, uh, four chapters. Oh, no wonder. Okay. And inside here. Again, I'm still rusty on the protocol of all these little things here. So... Now I can't even get the lid back on. There we go. Oh, boy. Anyway. All right. So I think, yep. All right. So first four chapters, that first word, the person, so the superior person of Christ is the main presentation in the first four chapters um, and begins like most most uh, treatments of who Jesus is in the scriptures begins with the fact that he's God, all right? So his, his, his person is superior because of his deity. He is God, all right? And that alone would solve it, obviously. But um, there's a lot of, the whole chapter of chapter one deals with that. In fact, um, there's a lot that we kind of just skipped over in that. But because, and I was thinking, you know, of recent, over the last year, looking at various psalms and that, we've, we've stopped, we've talked a lot about the person of Christ as far as his deity uh, and so on. Now, to the Jewish mindset, this is important, all right, because it was an obvious, again, the, the, the initial recipients of the book of Hebrews there in that first century, it was an obvious fact that Jesus was a man, all right? There, I mean, you know, that was obvious. To them, the issue was what? Remember, on numerous occasions in the Gospels, uh, things came up where he would say something, and then at least a couple occasions in the Gospel of John, and the Jewish leaders said what? He's made himself equal with God, all right? And that was, you know, what they got all up in arms about, supposedly. 
Um, but so the fact that of his deity is treated uh, rather thoroughly in chapter 1, and it's, uh, it's obviously the basis. Now everything else flows from there, all right? Um, and then as you begin chapter 2, you see, and we talked about this a little bit last week, the, the first warning. There's five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and uh, the first one here is just a, the short one in uh, the first four verses of chapter uh, 2 here, which um, uh, issue a warning um, based on that argument, all right? If, if, uh, if you know, the words spoken by angels, basically things in the Old Testament, could be referring exactly to the law. I'm not going to get into all the specifics of that, but there are several references in the Old Testament. It's not as apparent, say, in the book of Exodus, where you first see the, the historical accounts of it, but in, uh, in Psalm 68 uh, and, and other references throughout uh, the Old Testament, you see a lot of emphasis put on the fact that at Sinai, at the giving of the law, there were myriads of angels present. I mean, a lot of emphasis on that. So that could be you know, what the writer is kind of has in his mind as he says, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, all right, so the argument here is that he's issuing a warning, and the argument is, well, if the Old Testament was important enough that there were severe consequences for not listening to it, how much more severe is it if we don't listen to, and that's where verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. So in other words, the Lord Jesus here during his earthly ministry. And then remember that Hebrews was, was probably written in the 60s, in the, that, that decade of the 60s in the first century, all right? Not the 1960s. That's kind of how we think, you know, but the 60s, all right, because it, it seems apparent that Hebrews was written before the Romans destroyed the temple because all the reference to the sacrifices and stuff as ongoing, all right, uh, so it's very reasonable that that's the case, but yet because of other things, it, 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 again, it puts the, puts the date close to that, but not, but, but short a number of years of the destruction of the temple, which took place in AD 70, that's a historical fact. Uh, and so anyway, he's saying, how, how are we going to uh, escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, so Jesus during his earthly ministry, and then when he ascended, basically that ministry was carried on by apostles, and then, you know, of course, that, that spread out as well, but so which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So those apostles and so on, and how they then confirm that. And that was one of the main ministries of the apostles was a, conf, a, a confirming kind of ministry of what the Lord had started, what he said, and they were witnesses of those things, particularly witnesses of his resurrection and so on. But then confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So that ministry of the apostles was attested by miraculous things, all right, sign gifts and so on. I'm not going to get into all those things right now, but that's, that's basically what he's saying. The argument here is, all right, 
if the, if the, the things of the Old Testament that were ministered, given by angels, so to speak, if that was so important and there were consequences, severe consequences for disobeying that, how much greater are the consequences if we neglect that which God communicated directly through his son and then the ones that he ordained and left in his place, all right? And God even confirmed all that with signs and wonders. That's, that's the idea, all right? So it's a, it's a, it's a warning, kind of a pause in the, in the flow of the argument, just, just reiterating the seriousness of what's being talked about, all right? And so then in verse 5, you begin, we see the, the presentation of uh, the humanity of Christ. I don't know why that's... Okay, yeah, I was reviewing the outline. All right, his, his superiority because of his humanity is what's emphasized in the rest of chapter 2 and in a way in chapter 3 as well because the, the faithfulness aspect that's... Uh, uh, the faithfulness aspect that's emphasized in chapter 3 is, is only possible through his humanity, as you'll see, all right? But um, his superior person because of his humanity. So in, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, there's two main principles, I believe, about his humanity that are brought out. We mentioned these last week, and I asked you to go ahead and read chapter 2 with those things in mind, all right? Anybody remember what those two things were? Before I put them on the board. Actually, I got one there, don't I? Uh, as I said, I'm still getting used to the technological aspect of this. Uh, but the first is, to, and this is something that probably many people never even really think a whole lot about. When you think of why the Lord Jesus came to the earth and became a man and, and what he was doing, one of those is he came to recover man's dominion that was forfeited by Adam in his sin. Uh, he came to recover that dominion over creation. Remember, we, we started into this and then we ran out of time. But um, in Genesis chapter 1, somebody had read those verses last week, 26, 27, the account in the creation week of God creating man. And remember some of the things that were said there. Not only that God created man in his image after his likeness, but that he did what? He gave Adam, he gave man, man I believe it's man generically speaking there, dominion over his creation. In other words, man was in charge of creation. He put man here as a steward, you could say, to manage creation for him. Now, Adam messed that up, right? And then uh, because of that, you know, the, the Bible in subsequent places talks about how that really the, the, the dominion of this or, or the world now is kind of under Satan's dominion. Now, that's a temporary thing. But part of what Christ did when he came, became a man and was here on this earth, part of what he did was he regained that rightful dominion that's man's. Now, he'll, that, that's not being executed per se right now. That will be one day during the millennial reign, all right? But you, you see this talked about here in Hebrews. In fact, so let's read these several verses, verses 5 through 8 here. For unto the angels, now again, He's been comparing Christ with the angels. He's obviously greater than the angels because he's God, all right? But he's also greater as man, all right? And he says, for unto which of the angels, or excuse me, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. 
But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Now he's quoting from Psalm 8 here. So that certain that one is David in a certain place, Psalm 8. Uh, what is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest... Now this is, this is interesting what he brings up here. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels... Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. All right, and then let me read just the very first part of verse 9, because I, I think that has to do with this as well. But we see... Jesus, all right, and we'll just stop right there for right now, who was made a little lower than the angels, okay? But you see the argument here, let me uh, change my paper here, but you see that Christ came to recover man's dominion over creation. Now, think about this, man was originally intended to rule over creation, and I think I have these here, yeah. Um, he was made lower than the angels. Now, that's a statement that's made in Psalm 8 and referenced in probably a couple other places. In, in the book of Job, there's an interesting reference to that as well as in Psalm 144. Um, but, you know, when you stop and think about that, what does that mean? All right, and I think there's probably several uh, connections with that, all right? Obviously, in the scale of creation, man has been given a lower place than angels in that his his knowledge, his mobility, his power, etc., is, is limited, and man is subject to death. That's interesting because even when God created man, when Adam was still in the garden, God told him, he gave him a, a, an initial specific law, and he told him if he broke that, what would happen? He would die. So even from the beginning, man was subject to death. He wasn't under death yet until he sinned, but he was subject to that, all right? The angels, obviously, that's not the case for, all right? And so, in that sense, I think you can see that. I think there's another sense here, particularly as it pertains to specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, in that you could think of it in the word, uh, a word, you, uh, probation, all right? What is, what is probation, all right? And not necessarily specifically in the way of, like, what criminals, you know, who... They're on probation for so long or something, although it's the principle's there. But, like, if you were hired by an employer, a lot of times there's a probationary period, all right? You have to meet before you get all the benefits of something or something of that effect, all right? And the idea is, part of that is you are supposed to be demonstrating or proving your worthiness to have that or the fact that you know you've you're you're reliable that kind of an idea okay and in some ways that was the case with the lord jesus when he became man those 33 years that he lived here on this earth as a man before you know he died uh he was demonstrating his worthiness he was proving his uh, faithfulness. And again, that specific aspect is, is talked about a little bit more in the beginning of chapter 3, so we'll get to that. But the fact that he proved, he, 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 he demonstrated himself to be completely worthy, 
completely faithful, completely, you know, uh, obedient to God, all right? And, and those are terms sometimes people don't like to think of when it comes to God the Son, but he, he had to obey. He had, and, and we'll see that terminology used here in the book of Hebrews, that he learned obedience. Not, not as God, but as a man, he uh, did that. And he demonstrated himself uh, worthy in that, all right? So he, he was made lower than the angels, and because of sin, man has yet to realize his full potential. Jesus completes, fulfills man's original purpose. He demonstrated he's worthy to be, as a man, to rule over creation. And that will take place, basically, again, during the millennial reign, all right? When he returns in his second coming proper. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians, it's interesting that Paul references to the church at Corinth, that believers will judge angels, all right, one day. Uh, but again, this, this argument here for superior humanity, and then the second main argument in chapter 2 is that Christ in his humanity, his humanity was necessary to come and do these things. He had to become a man in order to do these things, all right? Uh, he couldn't, as just as God stay in heaven, he couldn't accomplish these things. He had to come, become a man, and come here and do things in order to uh, demonstrate and to prove these things, all right? And the second thing that he, main thing, argued in, in Hebrews chapter 2 about his superior humanity is that he came and in everything that he did... He came to reconcile man's relationship with God. Now, we think about this one often, when we, most of the time, when we think about uh, Christ you know, leaving heaven, coming to earth, and so on. And this is, this is referred to numerous times in the New Testament, of course, and so on. But, um, <coughs> pardon me, but he came to reconcile man's relationship with God. Would, uh, let's do this. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. There's uh, not everybody's going to get to read on this part here, but we'll have a couple other places we'll turn to, I think. Both of these principles we can see referred to here in a way in this passage, all right? Hebrews chapter 2. This is probably a familiar passage to some of you. Hebrews, or did I say here? Philippians chapter 2. We're in Hebrews 2, yeah, but Philippians chapter 2. Uh, beginning, um, well, for purposes of this, let's say, let's just begin reading in verse 1 and then read down through verse 11. Again, I'm not sure if everybody will get a chance or not, but if you'll start, Pastor. All right. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in holiness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. <clears throat> Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, in, in those verses, that's, a, that's a, probably, again, a familiar passage to many of you, and it, it's a passage that focuses on the Lord Jesus and how he's been God, he's always been God, he became man for certain things. And really, you see the same two principles here, in a way, referred to in this passage, at least indirectly the first one here, that he came to restore or recover man's dominion over creation, all right, because... So think about the argument here in, in Philippians chapter 2, all right? Paul's writing to the church of Philippi and addressing something. And, and really the whole point of this reference is the need for humility. That's why he says in verse 4, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the example of the Lord Jesus in heaven, willingly setting aside prerogatives that he, you know, rights he had as God, he willingly set aside prerogatives of his deity and took on humanity and came here and did something. Okay? Um, that's, so it, it, humility, it took humility, obviously, right? And that's, that's the point of the passage is that we need to have that kind of mindset. We need to have a humble mindset. And as we interact with others and so on, and obviously as well, of course, in our in our uh, humbling ourselves before God and so on. But about Christ then himself, he says that, you know, he, he laid aside those things. He was made uh, down in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All right? So... We, we understand that he did that, and in doing so, he reconciled man's relationship with God. But also because of that, as a man, he is now, he's earned a position, if you want to say. In, in a way, obviously, it's rightfully his as God, as the Son of God. But as, as the Son of Man, if I can word it that way, he has earned all that glory, all right? And that's what the, the last several verses of that passage there in, in Philippians 2 are referring to. Wherefore, verse 9, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every, tongue, uh, uh, every knee should bow things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, that's God's decree, if you want to say, about Jesus is that now everybody has to bow before him. Every mouth has to confess that he is Lord. Now, obviously, you understand, God gives people that, he gives them space. They can do that willingly now. There is coming a day for those that don't, they're going to do it, they'll be coerced or forced, however you want to say it. I think just by virtue of when they see him stand before him, they're going to fall. I mean, but the point being, he earned that because of what he did. That's, that's the idea here. As a man, he's earned the, the, the right to be highly exalted, and his name is set and put above every other name. 
All right? But in correlating that with Hebrews, it's because he became a man. It's because he was he came and did certain things. And in doing so, again, Hebrews emphasizes the fact that he, because of his, his, his obedience in that, he regained the right that Adam forfeited. He regained the right to, be, to have dominion over God's creation. And then secondly, in what he did, he provided a way that God can justly and without offending his righteousness, God can justify believing sinners. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But it's only because of what Jesus did. He had to come and do these things. It was necessary for him to become a man in order to do that. Now, uh, and they're not up here yet. Okay. In reconciling man's relationship with God, all right, his superiority to angels is not contradicted by his humanity because his humanity was necessary for suffering. Back in, back in Hebrews chapter 2, all right, verse 9 again, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. All right, that's, that's already been stated but now he's specifically applying it again to Jesus. He was made lower than the angels, but he was faithful and obedient, right? So he was made lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, that he's been crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So his suffering was necessary so that he could taste death for every man. His death was necessary, his suffering was necessary to reunite man with God. These four statements here. His suffering, even to death, was necessary to destroy the devil and deliver believing men. Again, provide a way that God can justly uh, save people. Sometimes I think that we fail to realize, you know, we just think God could, you know, save what, I mean, but something had to be done. God can't just overlook sin. God, you know, every sin that's ever been committed from the, you know, the first in the garden until the last that will ever be committed, every sin has to be dealt with somehow or another. And Christ has made a way that every sin can be forgiven by God because of in Christ, because of what Christ has done. I mean, that's an amazing thing to think about. And I, I, you know, I don't have the vocabulary to convey the, the, the seriousness and, and the, you know, the, the bigness, whatever word I could come up with or whatever, the greatness of that principle. But it's only through Christ and what he did. His humanity was necessary for this. He had to leave heaven. He had to become a man in order to do that. And without that, if, I mean, think about that. He, in a way, he had the right to say no. I mean, he didn't, de he didn't deserve any of this. He willingly did it. It was the only way it could be done. And this was, you know, this, this plan was, was formulated, if you want to say, before God ever created the world, all right? But the point is, he was submitted to it. And he came and completely fulfilled that. 
God's gracious purpose in it all was that Christ might, as verse 9 says, taste death for every man so that we don't have to. It's interesting the choice of words are taste it. In other words, he experienced it. He, you know, it wasn't just something that, oh, you know, he said and it, it did it. No, he had to, he had to physically go through these things and endure these things to identify with man, but also to make that way for God to be able to provide forgiveness through him. The Savior died as our representative, as our substitution, right? He did that for every man. In other words, on behalf of everyone. Now, and, and this is, of course, in entirely keeping with the righteous character of God, right? And that man's and again, both of these go together in this passage, man's dominion and man's salvation, all right? In, in a way, they're inseparable in this, in this argument in this passage, but this is completely in keeping with the righteous character of God. So man's dominion's restored through the humiliation of the Savior. That's, that, again, that's, that's almost like a paradox, but that's, that's one of those big ideas that it's hard for us to grasp sometimes. And it was necessary. All right? It's consistent with the holy character of God that Christ should suffer, bleed, die, all right? So God could have a way to put away sin. Now in, let's see, verse 9, notice verse 10, all right, and we've kind of re referenced these, but let's go back to verse 10 for a second. For it became him, it was fitting for him, is the idea, for whom all, for whom are, are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, this is one of those one of those statements in the Bible that some people like to harp on, pick on, and, and you know, talk about, well, he can't be God and all this because of statements like this. Now, think about what this is saying. Again, and in the scope of uh, everything has a context, of course, and in the scope of this argument, it's, it's talking about the humanity of Christ. All right? So he was made perfect through sufferings. What does that mean? Does that mean he was not perfect? We, he's not sinless? No, that's not the idea of the word perfect here. But the idea is it was, he, was, he completed it, okay, is I think the best way to think about it. He fully enacted it. He didn't fall short one bit. He had to become a man, of course, in order to do this. And as a man, he proved his perfection you could say. He demonstrated it. He lived it out, right? Uh, there's an argument among even what I would say good Bible-believing theologians, whatever, you know, is it possible? Because we're going to see later on here in Hebrews statements about Christ being tempted uh, and so on. And, and the, the question's often raised, is it possible that Jesus could have sinned, all right? Now, I'll just give you my short answer to that, and that is no, all right? And there's reasons for that. Well, I don't can't talk about all that right now. And then somebody, well, how could he have really been tempted if he could never sin? Okay, well, uh, again, we might get into some of that later. But the point being of this, of why these things are brought up here, is to demonstrate that he did not, all right? That he 
completely was obedient and faithful as a man. Now, that's the thing. When Jesus lived here, you know, all those, the presentation, the narrative in the gospel accounts and so on, all the things that we see him doing, he, he did that as a man. You know, again, it's one of those things, he's God, but yet he's man. And his, his time here on earth, his earthly ministry, I, I like using that phrase to describe it, because um, it's, you know, that's a specific aspect of his life, if I could say. But his, his earthly ministry here, the whole point was for him to come and demonstrate his qualifications. Demonstrate his faithfulness. Demonstrate his obedience to God and so on. But he did that all as a man. It was in obedience to the will, the word of, of the Father, and in reliance, and, and again, this is, this is deep if you really start trying to think about it, so don't, you know, try to think about it too much maybe, but, because, you know, but he did it in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Gospels make it clear that it was the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus as a man to do what he did. I, I mean, that, if you start trying to think, okay, God the Son, God the Spirit, I mean, but the point is, the emphasis is he did all that as a man. And as a man, he was obedient to the Father and reliant upon, totally reliant upon the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's an example to us because that's how we're to live. In following the plan of the Father and relying upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. All right? And as we do that moment by moment, we can be sin-free, okay? We'll never reach a state of where we are sinless, okay, and cannot sin, but in any given situation, we don't have to sin. That's the point. There's a difference in those two, okay? And that's a, that's a continual reliance upon the Holy Spirit. But uh, let, me, let me get back to the passage here. We, um, in in uh, verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's one of the phrases, uh, descriptions of Christ here, the captain of our salvation. We're going to see another interesting one at the beginning of chapter 3. But, and then verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth, that would be Jesus, and they who are sanctified, that's believers, are all one. <clears throat> Excuse me. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, he identified with us. And he, there's, there's no shame to him in what he did, in becoming a man and, and calling us brethren. I mean, he's willingly identifies with us. All right? Um, Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And that's a, I didn't mark this reference down. It's a reference to a psalm there as well. Um, but, uh, and then some, again, uh, reference that to, you know, what, what some people call the Last Supper. But when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper there, they sang together, the Bible says, I mean, but, um, and I, I think that's going to happen in heaven as well, 
But um, in the midst of the church, uh, will I sing praise unto thee? And then verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Again, there's identification here with, with man. And, <clears throat> pardon. And then notice verse 14. Let's try to get this chapter uh, through the chapter here. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Again, through what Jesus did, he destroyed the devil, his work. I mean, now he's, he's still doing what he's done for thousands of years right now. But his sentence is sealed. And, you know, Revelation 20, verse 10, tells us that there is coming a time when the devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And he'll be there then forever and ever and ever. I mean, that's coming. And he's read that, obviously. Whether he really, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder things like this. Now, you know, maybe, but... Does the devil really believe that? Does he really think he can thwart God? I mean, I can't necessarily answer that, okay? But he's obviously trying to, giving everything he can to, to try to, all right? But the, his doom is sealed. Now, it hasn't been enacted out, you know, carried out, that sentence. It, it's like, you know, kind of in a human court, all right? Somebody can come before a court and be found guilty, and then they come back and get sentenced, and, you know, there's, there's time spaces in there, right? And in a way, it's kind of like that with, with this. I mean, the devil's sentenced, but it hasn't been carried out yet. It will one day. And um, so, where did I leave off here, right? And, and uh, verse 14, then again, he's, uh, that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. And again, getting back to that, the bigger argument here that Jesus is better than angels, not just because he's God, but because his humanity. And his humanity was necessary for certain things, but uh, so he took not on the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. That's an interesting statement there. That's a, a description of Christ that's consistent throughout the Bible. Galatians makes it clear that when God was talking to Abraham and made that covenant with Abraham about his seed and so on, at least one aspect of that. Sure, there's, a, there's an aspect of that that's true that as Israelites and, you know, the people of Israel, God has a plan and, a, and a, he's got a special watch care over them and, and so on. And, he, and by the way, God's going to, he's going to do great things with Israel yet in the future. All right. They're kind of in that limbo uh, on hold pattern right now. All right. But that, that'll be, you know, take place as well in the future. It's determined by God and it will happen. Right? But there's an aspect of that promise to Abraham that refers just to Christ. He is, as Galatians says, it's not seeds many, but seed of Abraham, Christ. All right? And so another reference to Christ as, as the seed of Abraham here. Right? Then verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him. The word behooved means what? It was necessary, all right? It's, it's a necessary thing, all right? So it behooved him. It was necessary for him. 
to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful. Again, it's, it's referring to the fact it was necessary for him to become a man for certain reasons. And here he says that he might be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So two things here that are, are, are elaborated on much more later in the book of Hebrews. It was necessary, necessary for him to become a man so that he could become a faithful high priest. And secondly, so he could make that reconciliation right, for the sins of the people. That is what a pri- that's one of the aspects of what a priest did, right? A prophet speaks to men for God, right, on behalf of God. A priest goes to God on behalf of man. And Christ does both of those, of course. But uh, so to be made that merciful and faithful high priest, he's not just merciful, but he's faithful. All right, and then verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, in other words, he was tempted. Think of the word tempted here with the word tested, all right? He was put to the test in every way, in every way possible. He was put to the test, but he proved himself faithful. And because of that, and in doing so, he is able to be a faithful and merciful high priest because he, as later on we'll see, he knows the feelings of our infirmities. He relates to it because he was tested. He's a man, all right? Uh, and becoming man, he's able to do that. All right, this is all, again, part of this whole argument. He's better because, he's superior because of his his humanity as well as his deity. And he's the only one that that could be said of. So suffering was necessary to qualify him as a merciful and faithful high priest. And again, then that, that aspect of him being the high priest, that's elaborated on for about five, six chapters in the book of Hebrews in just a bit. It's not quite there yet. All right. Um, Think of Hebrews as well as a book, and let me just say, and i got to close, but think of, think of the book of Hebrews as kind of like the same principle that you see true of all of the Bible, all right? God, does, you know, he, he, he starts out with certain ideas, certain truths, and then he builds upon those as we go through time, right? Same thing's true in Hebrews. He, you'll see principles begun, and then those are elaborated on. It's not that he completely changes. It's just he just keeps then building upon every one of those as you go through the book of Hebrews. So the Lord Jesus is superior. He's better than all, not just the angels, but the prophets. We've seen those two in chapter 1, and then uh, the angels still here in chapter 2. But he's superior because of the fact that he's God, obviously. And that, again, you could say that solves it all. But in his humanity as well, he is demonstrated to be superior. And he's, he's done what's necessary so that man and Jesus as a man in the millennial reign, he has the right to rule and reign on this earth. But also he did what was necessary to reconcile man's relationship back to God, provide a way of salvation for us. Right? That's the argument so far. So let's go ahead and, and uh, pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word.
Thank you for this wonderful portion of your word, the book of Hebrews. Help us as we continue looking at it and just to be able to uh, understand it. And then as we stop on certain things and, and uh, try to hopefully bring clarity to certain passages and so on. But just help us to, to understand and have a better appreciation for the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he's done. But then to you uh, also, Lord, for your uh, Father, for your aspect and and. Uh, work in this as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 